When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Welcome to a special episode of this podcast recorded live at the Spoke Street Media booth during Seek 2023 in St. Louis. To find more shows recorded at Seek, search for The Seek Podcast in your favorite podcast app. Enjoy. Welcome to a special episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the award-winning radio show and podcast, usually featuring two of us physician hosts, but I'm the only one that could make it. Chris Stroud and Andrew Mullally are back home in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but I've got some uh, ringers in here that you're going to love. What do we do here? We discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. We are recording this special episode with 17,000 of our closest friends here in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for being here. So the theme today of our uh, show is, can you be a good Catholic and a good doctor or nurse in 2023? Because many people are getting the answer that no, you can't. Catholics, not welcome. We want to thank Spoke Street here for sponsoring the booth at Seek 2023. You can check out their whole collection of podcasts at SpokeStreet.com. We are on there and we are happy to be on there and we are extremely happy to be here. So as I mentioned before, we have note cards. This is unusual. We've never been able to take questions before. Write them down on the card. Kyle will bring it to us. I want to introduce my three guests. So first of all, our longest serving uh, physician here is uh, no stranger to Dr. Doctor. She's been on five times before. This is her sixth time. Sister Marisha Weber is a religious sister of mercy who also happens to be a psychiatrist who did her training at Mayo Clinic. She now works for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Let's give her a round of applause here. She's an expert particularly in screen addiction, the pornography epidemic, and telemedicine. Then we have, to her left, Dr. Emily Crash. Emily attended college at St. Mary's in Notre Dame, Indiana. She then went to medical school in Indianapolis and is now a new minted family practice physician at Cradle Family Medicine in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome, Emily. And then to my right, we have James Redmond, doctor-to-be in just a few months. He's a fourth-year medical student at USC, not the one in South Carolina, the one in Los Angeles. And he is going to be an obstetrician gynecologist. He's a former focused missionary and worked at Boise State University doing that. Welcome, James Redmond. So I would like to go around here and, first of all, ask each of our guests what they think of the topic. So, Sister Marisha, can you be a good doctor and a good nurse and a good Catholic in 2023? Absolutely, because we believe and know that we're creating God's image and likeness. So we have the image of God. And given we have the image of God, then we have his likeness. But sometimes our likeness, we get a little physically ill, sometimes emotionally difficulties come on. 
but a Catholic doctor, knowing that integrity, seeks to find out what the illness is, what are the underpinning dynamics, and then bring it back to health. And that's what makes us even better doctors because we're Catholic. So Emily, you're closer to your training. Uh, what do you think about that? Because you've probably seen more challenges than sister did when she trained. Yes, it definitely takes courage trying to become a doctor or nurse as a Catholic these days. And it's essential to not go on this journey alone that um, you need to surround yourself with a good community, especially mentors who are going to guide you along this path. And James Redmond, you are in the midst of it, in the belly of the beast, so to speak. What do you think about that question? Yeah, I think it's a, a great question and one that we all have to answer if we are Catholics who want to go into healthcare. Um, otherwise, it will be uh, asked of us uh, at a time when we don't, aren't prepared for it. So I think, of course, the answer is yes. And, and the reason for that, from my experience, has been that growing in my faith, encountering the Lord and understanding the, who the human person is through a classical, classical anthropology, um, I'm all the more invigorated and informed on how to care for uh, the human person in a holistic way. And so I'm very grateful for my faith to, to uh, empower me to be able to do that. So we've already met over 300 pro, uh, future healthcare professionals at the CMA booth, uh, which is to our right and behind us. And we've even met some who used to be in medicine in a medical field and they're no longer because they didn't think they could hack it anymore as a Catholic. So the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about some of the things that can help you to do that. Now, before we go on, our show always has a medical trivia question of the day. And so I'm going to ask it, and maybe you'll know the answer to this. And the category of the medical trivia question is college student health. According to Statista.com, what percentage of college students as of fall of 2021 have been diagnosed with at least one mental illness? What percentage? We'll give the answer toward the end of the show and talk about that a little bit. But speaking of mental illness, I would like to give a big shout out to our Episcopal advisor, who I've gotten to know over the last four or five, six years, Bishop James Conley at Mass today. He has opened up himself incredibly about his own experience with anxiety and depression. And if you want to hear his story in detail, episode 213 of Dr. Doctor was uh, a chance to interview him, and he did a great job on that. So, the th reflections on the theme of Seek this year is Fear Not, Rise, He is Calling You. How did each of you know that you were called to be a physician? I'm going to start with you, James. Yeah, for me, it was a very stepwise process. Uh, I remember all the way back in elementary school, I thought, you know, I really like people and I really like science. So first profession that came to mind was being a physician. Uh, and then from there, you know, in undergrad, I studied biology, really loved the sciences, loved applying the scientific method to you know, learn truths of the uh, empirical world. And uh, from there, I think the most important thing anytime we're doing any uh, moment of discernment is to immerse oneself in the environment uh, of that which you are discerning. And so doing shadowing experiences, you know, following other doctors and seeing what the day-to-day looks like. So you've known like. since you were little. You, you didn't have any it, doubts? It was, uh, it was that or being a soccer player, and that didn't work out too well. So it's kind it of the only one Yeah, left. the Americans got kicked out in the, what, the round of 16 this year? Yeah, we, that's always the round we seem to get kicked out in. Yep. <laughs> Emily, when did you know and how did you know that you were supposed to be a physician? Well, I first became interested during uh, my morality class in high school, um, learning about how compatible our faith is with the practice of medicine, and then continued to pursue that, but finally realized uh, during residency that 
I no longer had the attitude, well, I think I could have done something else and still been happy and still found joy, but actually being able to work in person during the pandemic and treat patients and really be there for them really um, allowed me to realize that this was a true vocation. Is there anything that you had considered before medicine? I actually had considered becoming a parasitologist. Oh Uh, my goodness! That's like intestinal worms and stuff. Yes, I did uh, research in that in uh, for my uh, senior ho- uh, comprehensive in uh, college and was considering that, but then decided that I would rather work with people. Very good choice. And then, uh, Sister Marisha, how did you know and when did you know? Or did your superior tell you? I was nine years old, and in, my, in the same room where I was at, my 18-month-old sister screamed, and there was a funny buzz, and I pulled her reflexively away from the wall beyond myself, and she had a melted bobby pin in her hand. So we took her to the emergency room. My mother didn't speak English. She only spoke French. So so she was checking to see if it conducted electricity. Yes. (laughs) And the physician in the ER was talking to me about the layers of skin in the hand, and he was so good with her. We were so frightened. And then when I was 16, I was hit as a pedestrian walking across the street by a car. And I thought, you know, I had minor injuries that, you know, I've got to somehow give back to healthcare because God has been so good to me. So I was not a religious at the time. I was not even Catholic. So I, as a very young child. And then ever since then, you've wanted to be a physician. Yes. That's incredible. Well, how did you know you were called to be a psychiatrist? And and tomorrow we have a a breakout session at lunch, uh, 1230. And we're going to talk about vocation in medicine. And and Bishop Conley talked about that at mass today. And you know, there's, everyone has a vocation to holiness. Then there's our state in life, which we typically think of as vocation. But there's also a personal vocation that John Paul talked about. So that's what we're getting into next, because you're all there now, also discerning your personal vocation as well as your state in life. So how did you know yours was in psychiatry? I was not even Catholic, and I was doing a GI rotation in a (laughs) medical hospital, and then I wanted to do cardiology. And so the clinic that I went to was a clinic that was full of sisters who are doctors and nurses. Yes. And was overwhelmed with medicine there, and so discovered a call to religious life first. And you weren't even Catholic? I was not Catholic. So where does a psych come in? Well, then I was very intrigued, so I asked to be formed in the faith, went through RCIA, and then when I entered, my mother general asked me if I would be willing to go into psychiatry, which is a daunting, daunting request. But I thought, you know, the vow of obedience and my love of Jesus, and Jesus was obedient, and I want to follow his will. So I said yes, and trained at Mayo Clinic, and I'm so grateful to have this privilege of working as a psychiatrist, as a sister. Wow. I I suspect none of our listeners today will probably be told by a religious superior what specialty to go into. That's a unique story. Actually, I know another, we know another sister who was told. Many of our sisters are physicians and many of them have been told. Wow. (laughs) How about you, Emily? When did you know family medicine? Well, I obviously love families since I'm a family <laughs> doctor. So, uh, but definitely some of my mentors, uh, Andrew Mullally and also Kate Hyman, have been instrumental in um, guiding me in this process. And I've just really looked up to them and some other family doctors as well and just really wanted to be like them when I grew up. Aww. That's, and then how about you, James? You're now going into, well, you're one of 18% of future obstetrician gynecologists who are male. How did that happen? 
Yeah, for me, uh, my first year of medical school, uh, we had our uh, reproduction block. And so just learning about the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, I thought oh, was fascinating. Gynecologic endocrinology was a blast. Yes, truly. I mean, just on a cerebral level, it just was so yes. interesting. And so God that, made you women really complicated. <laughs> yeah. But it's fun to study. <laughs> That's right. And so th that actually led me to the research. I, I uh, did research in fertility awareness-based methods uh, with a professor out of uh, University of North Carolina. And that was just so fascinating. Um, and really propelled me to learn more about how that uh, patient population was very underserved, um, even uh, such a need there. And then when I was in my OBGYN clerkship in medical school, uh, just being able to walk with these women in such an intimate and, and important part of their lives, I thought was such a privilege. And so all these things kind of came together and just made me realize it's kind of a, a great a great gift to be able to be an OBGYN. So. Yeah, and you've had some uh, wonderful mentors in the CMA too. That's right. Yeah, I mean, they've been a pivotal players in helping me discern this career. So sometimes there are roadblocks to following our personal vocations. And sometimes there's various types of addictions, some that we don't even realize. Sister, what do you see as some of the big roadblocks, types of addictions that maybe college students might run into? Yeah, maybe a cell phone <laughs> and social media, which then could offset the regulation in your pathways of liking something and wanting something. And then you get agitated because you want it more than you like it. That could lead you to other things like excess gaming, excess pornography, and altering that balance that God created us to maintain. So, um, yes, silence, peace, quiet is very important to kind of purify our memory and imagination because we're getting, we're becoming passive receptacles of all this data that gets at us. And uh, Emily, you know, something unique about her. She has done all of her life, all of her training in one single state. You rarely come into that anymore. So what's that like for you? Do you feel like, do you have FOMO? Do you have fear of missing out, Emily? I don't have any regrets. I'm a lifelong Hoosier and have <laughs> a lot of state pride. Um, one thing, uh, reason why I've mainly stayed in the beginning was just because I had a scholarship to work in underserved areas in Indiana, but then ah. they changed it to anywhere in the state counts just because there's such a shortage of primary care physicians. And so I don't really have any regrets about not leaving. I've had such great mentors here and um, great connections with the Catholic Medical Association. And then also, too, had encountered numerous professors during med school who actually moved to Indiana from other states just because of our better malpractice laws here because of our former governor. Otis Bowen. So. Yes. So, and you can go to any college, you can go to any medical school and become an excellent physician or nurse. It, it really, the name doesn't matter. Your patients aren't going to care when you're treating them where you went to school. And James, what's it like to be a minority? One of 18% now. So new residents in OBGYN are 82% women. What's that like? Yeah, I've, uh, I talked about it with some faculty advisors um, at USC, and they've been really helpful in helping me kind of, you know, uh, navigate all that. I mean, I think first thing is come to realize that, like, you know, as a man, I don't viscerally understand what my patients are going through, and you know, I can't become <laughs> pregnant. So uh, I think that gives me pause and just, uh, you know, makes me all the more attentive uh, to what it is that my patients are voicing. But I think, you know, the center of medicine is always the patient, it's not the provider. And so uh, any person who has, you know, the passion and, and the skill set um, to be able to serve a particular patient population in, in a particular field, um, I think that is the arrows, you know, they're pointing in the right direction for that's the field you should be in. So uh, that's beautiful. Well, now let's move on to um, another doctor, not a medical one, and that's St. Thomas Aquinas. 
Now, he said that there are four main idols that can get in the way of us following God's will. And I'd like you to comment on what, which of these do you think particularly might be a roadblock for the students here listening to what God's calling them to be if it's in medicine. And he says those four idols are money, power, fame, and honor. And honor meaning like prestige and admiration. So, sister, I'll let you start tackling that okay, one. Okay, yes. I mean, those, there's certainly degrees of purity of intention. And all those, you know, wanting to be liked, wanting to um, somebody support me can be at issue. And so what St. Thomas would call this is the love of concupiscence, the desire, you know, my own personal gain in order to feel good about myself. But then that, that's a misplaced identity. And really, it's, it's the love of friendship, where I value the good in another and who they are as also my good. And ultimately, that's giving glory to God. And that's where we're really going to find fulfillment is in relationship rather than my personal gain in order to build my identity, which is false. Emily, how would you answer that? I would Idols. say, well, this morning at Mass, uh, Bishop Connolly was talking in his homily about how um, in order for us to truly see patients or students as teachers and doctors um, and truly love them, we must yes. recognize their dignity and worth and value. And we can't do that if we're focusing on, oh, what is the secondary gain from this patient? Only seeing dollar <laughs> signs, only ordering unnecessary tests, that sort of thing. We need to focus on the patient as a true person, as a child of God. And James. Yeah, I think uh, as someone in medical school, was, that examination has been very helpful in really helping me distill what is it that the Lord is drawing me into versus you know any corrupted desires that I have in terms of uh, discerning a field. And so I really love that examination because it really allows you know if we bring that uh, you know sit before the foot of the cross and ask the Lord to purify our desires and allow us to see really what is His will. Um, all those kind of uh, temptations can be um, washed away, uh, and the Lord can really uh, reveal to us His will. Okay, a couple questions that we have from the audience. Thank you so much. Uh, a couple related to psychology. Sister, how does a psychology major navigate academia when we live in a culture where truth is subjective? Oh, good question. And I think, I think that what we need to do is really go back to the basics because it's not relative. I think the problem is when we separate a universal truth from a natural truth. And if we keep those together, I mean, the integrity of who we are and how we are. And, and truth, God is truth. You know, God is the truth, the way, and the life. And I think we can stay hold on that without any question, without any doubt. And we've heard that in so many presentations today, um, the integrity of the human person. Um, and just to stay steady on that, pray to the Holy Spirit. Uh, um, beg the, our Lord to have the words for you when you're talking to someone who's going to really doubt this in your so, own regard. So another psychology question. Someone wants to study it, but she wants to be a sister while doing it. The answer is talk to her at our booth 925 because their order is full of doc of nurses and doctors and they would probably have room for you. So let's see, next question I have. Oh, this was an interesting one. I work with a lot of trauma patients and unfortunately see a lot of drunk driving accidents. How do I approach talking about sobriety in a non-judgmental manner? Emily. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard. It's something that you need to um, definitely not come across as um, from a judgmental side that, um, you know, starting with, um, you know, baby steps almost just coming, you know, to the patient, telling them, seeing if they're ready to change and um, meeting them where they are. And if they're, if you sense that they're um, interested in wanting advice, then you can go further. But it's, it's a difficult area because they might, if they're not ready, then, then 
you it, might not be able to help. In other words, one of our, our favorite most common guests on the show is psychiatrist Kevin Majors, who's um, out at Harvard. And he talks about preserving bonds with people oh, even before, before truth, not instead of truth, but before truth. So you've got to develop that rapport first before you can go into any of those other, other issues. James, was there anything that you were afraid of encountering in the medical field as a Catholic? Um, I think one thing would be, uh, you know, just the, the confrontation that may arise with any of the ethical questions um, that are inherent to, uh, to medicine. Um, I think, you know, when the, in, it may arise in different clinical scenarios and knowing that, you know, maybe a colleague or a patient um, sees that situation in a different way than you do. I think that I had this fear of a lack of connection um, because of that, you know, uh, difference in opinion. But uh, one thing that I've been taught is just the, the importance of asking good questions, of truly trying to um, be attentive and, and understand what, uh, where the other person is coming from. And from there, I think uh, really, you can find common ground and go, go from there. Here's from a Catholic ICU nurse, intensive care unit nurse. How do you make your healthcare decisions that are expected of you by the organization that might contradict your faith? Who'd like to tackle that one? Emily. Yeah, well, you have to know that you, there are laws protecting you. Yes. So the church amendment and other other laws that you need to be aware of. And if you have to carry around um, just uh, even a handout just to, to show it, then... Uh, uh, the Alliance for Defending Freedom on their website has a free printout booklet that has all of the protections you have as a healthcare student as well as a, a healthcare provider. So there are many things that are there. And many of the um, contracts when you're applying for jobs or you know, residency positions, they do have conscience rights that you need to you know, talk about. But we about. also know there are, we, we have friends and colleagues who have lost their jobs because they refused to do things that they thought were harmful to patients. And that's the best way I have always found to, to voice it, not in terms of a religious objective, but say it, it's not good medicine, it's, it's not good for this physical reason or mental reason. You don't even have to say it's a religious objection. And that's something that reminds me that as Catholics, uh, one of our, our doctors who's really been involved with trying to combat some of the lies in the transgender uh, arena said that, and it's true, as Catholics in healthcare, to be an equal level of respect to those who are not Catholic, we have to work harder, be smarter, and do better to get the same level of respect. And it's not fair, but it's the way it is. You think so, James? Yeah, I think um, given that the general kind of culture in medicine right now, maybe uh, a lot of these important ethical questions aren't, uh, the culture isn't so in line with, with Catholic teaching. I think uh, that is where the truth from that you know, quote comes from. I think uh, what I have found, though, is when, when you encounter people who maybe have difference of opinions and therefore might judge you because of that, just ha having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them and, and explaining that um, you know the rationale behind why we see things and why we do things that we uh, the way we do, I have found that to be very helpful. And uh, and people usually, especially in academia and in medicine, where there's a lot of great intellectuals, are very open to hearing those ideas. Um, and because of course the ideas have great reason and truth behind them. Before I go on to a couple of the questions, one of the, my favorite questions I wanted to ask these three is from the vantage point of your career today in medicine. If you could have an encounter like they do in Star Trek, like Spock did with his previous self, what would you call your college student self? What would you tell your college student self that you wish you knew then that you didn't? Let's start with you, sister. Okay. I was not Catholic at the time. And so I bought the Kool-Aid of the culture 
and was so working hard to get to medical school and wish that I knew more about the beauty of the faith and the dignity of the human person. And so it, mine just came a little bit later and I'm glad that it did. So that's the one thing that I you know, can see that it was a real human grunt and groan that um, was not necessary, but it was the, the lie of the culture. What would you tell a younger Emily? I think definitely for me, it'd be very practical in all of the years that it took for me to develop good study, efficient study skills and effective study skills and how to better take tests because you take your fair share of tests in college and medical school. <laughs> um, I would give myself the advice that took me years to figure out on my own how to take those tests better, how to study more efficiently so that I could devote more time to better leisure activities. Excellent. And James? I would say to prioritize your interior life, um, especially during the college years. You know, college students, a lot of us, uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago that I was in college, uh, are very busy. But a lot of the things that occupy your time, you know, extracurriculars, social activities, they are, in a sense, optional. Uh, whereas once you're in medical school, the, you know, all of your studies, if you have a family, you know, you're married with children, those things are not optional. Those are going to always uh, demand your attention. And so to really make time for daily prayer, for frequenting the sacraments, building that bedrock, that relationship with the Lord is the, the first and foremost thing in your life that will help you so much uh, during the rigors of medical school. Because we must remember that there aren't only isolated moral ethical questions in medicine. Every encounter that you have with a patient is a moral encounter. And they are coming to you because they want to know what you think is best for them to do. They don't want you just dispense what they're asking for. And so you are forming your person that's going to interact with that other person. So I couldn't agree with James Moore. James Moore, form yourself as the human person God made you to be. Two questions at the same time about the same topic. And that is, as a good Catholic, what you should you do if you're required to provide birth control for women as a nurse? Or the other question, is it moral as a Catholic to prescribe birth control and contraception? Which one do you want to start? I can take okay. a stab at it. Um, yeah, well, of course, I'm not a doctor yet, so I'm not in the position to prescribe, so I can definitely uh, step in there. But uh, what I have learned from a lot of mentors is, uh, first and foremost, when you ever uh, start in a particular hospital setting or in a service, you just talk with the physician in charge, and you just tell them, hey, I want to let you know. Um, this is uh, how I approach these things. And again, sharing the rationale is so important because they've probably never heard uh, the reasoning. And uh, then just talking about it, you know, starting, I guess, in that philosophical way and then go into the practicals about what that looks like in so, the clinical so setting. So what's something practical you say besides I'm Catholic and can't do this? Because you don't want to say it that way. What's the positive way you say that? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, with regards to contraception, uh, how I have um, really formed myself is the idea that, you know, I, I see my role as a future medical provider to... Uh, help restore disease organ systems uh, and to not do things that thwart um, the healthy functioning of such organ systems. And so in, in light of that, uh, I do not think it would be in good conscience to prescribe contraceptives um, as a medical provider. And so, however, um, also in light of that, I uh, have done a lot of study and research in fertility awareness-based methods and in restorative reproductive medicine and uh, that are all founded on the idea of trying to get to the root of different gynecological pathologies and trying to restore them to healthy organ function. And so, Emily, how do you handle that with your patients? So definitely, I want to also add about, um, in for you know nurses and uh, especially resident doctors who are maybe asked to um, administer contraceptives, that it's um, important to discuss with whoever is supervising you, uh, let them know um, your ethical and moral 
several objections to that first. And unfortunately, there's always another nurse or another resident who is more than willing and eager to do those activities. So they that there's always someone else that, that can do that job. And, you know, you don't want to ever seem like you're trying to get out of work. So you can say, so I would do what, another. What's activity. the positive reason you tell women why you don't do it? Why yes. you don't think it's good for them? So, yeah, I tell them that there is the possibility that um, an abortion could occur by um, prescribing contraception and that um, we want to make sure that we uphold the dignity and value of every life, even for an, an unborn child. And do you tell them anything else about how it can harm them as an individual? Yes. Not, not just physical, mm -hmm. but you know, even spiritual, emotional? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we talk a lot about um, risks of depression, uh, risks of uh, breast cancer, risks of um, obesity, and just how um, you know, all those side effects together um, doesn't really make sense to us to prescribe something that can make your already existing problems worse. So uh, the answer, the direct answer to the question is that no, it's never moral to prescribe contraceptives for a contraceptive purpose. Some doctors do it for non-contraceptive purposes, but there's virtually, there's always a better option than giving a contraceptive for something. In fact, we did an episode way back in the early years of Dr. Doctor. You can search it on our website, drdoctor.org, and you can look up non-contraceptive uses. It was actually with a physician, uh, an OB-GYN here from St. Louis, and he goes into all the reasons why it's really never good to prescribe them for any reason. There's always a better option. So let's look at uh, what do you think is the hardest thing about being a faithful Catholic in 2023 American medical culture, sister? I think there's a lot of um, people are, are going to try to symptomatically treat things, which is not good medicine. And I think what we're getting to is good ethics is good medicine, which we were talking about earlier. And so there's the challenge of that, of, you know, this isn't true or you're, you're, you're being biased or judgmental. And really what we're about is providing the healing of the body, to look at the underpinning pathology that's going on and bring it back to its health. And I think that's a challenge that comes up, that um, we're, we're misinterpreted as judgmental, but it really is trying to look for the underpinning dynamics and bring the, 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 the physical body and the emotional person, as well as spiritual, back to its, its maximum function. Emily, what do you think is the hardest thing about being a faithful Catholic today? So I think definitely the um, promotion of gender-affirming care in a uh, and the promotion just in general of transgender um, treatments is is definitely alarming to me in terms of medical education. And um, I feel like even I'm more scared of that in terms of, you know, for future residents being forced to engage in that uh, in the future. And because it's easy. Yeah, and you're going to tell a story tomorrow at our lunch breakout session about a patient you had. So we're going to save it for that. I'm not going to ask you to talk about it now. But tomorrow at 1230 for any future health care, we have a, a room that will seat 500 of you tomorrow across the hall, 122 to 125. Be there. James, what do you think is the hardest thing about being a Catholic medical student in 2023? Yeah, I think uh, I think well, Sister and Emily shared some uh, some great insights. Another piece that I have found is um, just being surrounded. You know, the, the lack of being surrounded by other faithful people in in uh, you know in the hospital setting and uh, and other clinical scenarios is very difficult in terms of just you know having good spiritual conversations, being built up in the faith, and in your uh, efforts to grow in holiness. I think that lack of community can make it very challenging. 
Right, so find a community. If you get to your med further medical training beyond college, sometimes you have to do it. There was nothing when I went to medical school years ago at Mayo Clinic, so uh, my future wife and I started a young adult singles ministry. So if you don't have one, start one. You know, I guess that's my motto. So we have been talking to hundreds of students here on Mission Way at our booth. I'd like you to tell us what's one of your favorite conversations that you've had in the last couple days at our booth, sister. There's a young man who is here, who's not Catholic, who is here on behalf of the hospital where he works. And um, he was just especially taken the first day at mass, kneeling, and he just found himself saying, okay, I'm gonna keep kneeling even though my knees hurt, <laughs> and began to talk to God and wanted to know what God was asking of him. And then as we're having this conversation, a seminarian came up who he learned was a convert and then ended up in the seminary. Huh? And he said, you know, if you have any Catholic questions, ask me. And he says, give me your number. They exchange numbers. And it's like, whoa. And so this young man just said, whoa, the Holy Spirit just kind of gave me this huge burst of something that I've just got to just Beautiful. sit with. Beautiful. Beautiful. Emily, what's one conversation you'd like to um, I met a young gentleman who was excited to share with us at our booth that his girlfriend, Grace, had just gotten accepted to uh, LSU for medical school, but she was unfortunately unable to be here. So he uh, pulled her up on FaceTime on his phone and we got to congratulate her and let her pick out a t-shirt and talk with her about joining the CMA. And so we're even reaching people who aren't at the conference. And James. Yeah, there was one point yesterday where I was talking with a group of students and you could see the excitement in their eyes just coming from mass uh, and coming from these talks. And you, there was clearly an encounter they were having with our Lord, and and because of that, they were asking such good questions about what does it mean to be a Catholic medicine. You know, how do I grow in holiness? And uh, it was just a really invigorating and, and beautiful conversation. It really inspired me to to grow closer to to Jesus. So. Uh, I get so excited meeting with students every time we do this. It's just a blast. And Kyle just reminded me. So of our 300 episodes we've done so far, three dealing with contraception at least. Uh, number 17 is oral contraceptives, fact and fiction. That's the one I was referring to before. Uh, number 71, science-based information. Oh, that's a fun episode. Guy from University of Dallas and uh, in uh, Texas. And 172, the bitter pill, the economic aspects of how contraceptives have ruined the marriage market. Yes, that's the thing in economics. The marriage market and contraceptives have ruined it mostly for women. Uh, which may, means men nowadays tend to have more to choose from, sad to speak. Okay, this is a couple of good questions. And this is one, actually, I just met a physician in my parish, and I'm going to ask you this question. We're having her and her husband over for breakfast next week. I'll have a better answer. How can you go about making it to Mass when as a healthcare provider, such as a nurse, you are required to work 12-hour shifts? For instance, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., on weekends. And, you know, I was thinking about this. There's not many places I have a 6 a.m. Sunday Mass or a Mass Saturday evening or Sunday after 7 p.m. So, so, sister, you're in religious life. How would you counsel that? I, th I think that she needs to find out where a Mass is available and make that her lunchtime and maybe her break time. And hopefully it's not too far away. But what if they don't get enough time? I mean, a lot of times when yeah. you're on for 12, you can't leave the... 
Now, that's very difficult. If, if worse comes to worse, then she can also make spiritual communion. And that's very, very real, where there's a very simple prayer that you can get online that just, Jesus, I cannot receive you directly right now, but in my heart, I long to have you within me. And she can say, and our Father, a glory be, and our Lord will be present to her in those ways. And those persons who are you know, in, out in the field in, in underdeveloped countries are able to do that. And that's the, that's the power of God's grace, that he will be, make himself available to us in any way. Emily has um, an I was going to add, too, that um, a lot of college campuses ha- cater to the students who like to stay up till ungodly hours, so they often will have mass at 9 or 10 p.m. at night. So ah. if you're working until 7 p.m., just drive to the nearest local college and find out their mass schedule. But is it an excused absence if your, your, your vocation in medicine requires you to be away from mass, or should we refer her to her parish priest? I think if she makes every effort to be able to go and is not able to go, of course, then the, the intention, the motivation to go and to make that, that spiritual intent, um, God will certainly receive that in his merciful love for her. If I could add just two more other practical tips. Oh, good. Um, usually if you have, go to the vigil mass at, on Saturday evening, uh, you should be able to go to that or the 5 p.m. mass on Sunday evening, one or the other. But if they're working 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., you can't. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess that's probably true. Yeah. Um, or, and then the other one is masstimes.org, just looking around everywhere around yes, <laughs> where you live, seeing if there's org. any you know, of the mass times that Emily was talking about. Hopefully, there's somebody who's distributing community in the, in the church, in the hospital as well. Who knows? If right. There's a, a chaplain. So, what advice do you have for future medical students, nursing students who have to deal with classmates or instructors or attendings who think that our views? of the human person are actually wrong, nearsighted, and bigoted? I think a lot of it is just to build a rapport. Ask them what it is that they have trouble with, what they're angry about. Maybe they've been hurt. Maybe they're afraid. Maybe there's a sorrow. And so you can first connect with them and hear them, and then maybe give them um, some right or accurate teaching about the faith, but I think empathy, just to receive them where they are, maybe refer them to some material, or, or you know, um, let them know that they've been hurt, but, you know, offer them really something that's solid and Catholic, because so many of them don't even know what that is, and they don't know what they don't know, and they've already rejected the truth. What about yeah. you, Emily? And going off with what Sister said, it's important to definitely not come at these conversations with any sort of anger. You need to be respectful and, and, and be a good listener, but also note that what is it that they're concerned about? You need to know, um, do they have a distorted view of Catholicism? And, is, and if so, clear that up. Find out what are they actually arguing against you. Yeah, I mean, I actually couldn't agree more with what with Emily and sister are saying. I think uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen put it best when he said, you know, there are not 100 Catholics, or 100 people who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions of people who hate what they wrongly perceive the Catholic Church to be. Um, and so I've found in a lot of conversations with people is that they actually don't know either what the teaching is or what the rationale behind that teaching is. And so just having a very, you know, candid, polite conversation, in which you also come uh, with a humble disposition of asking them good questions, uh, it can be very effective. Indeed. So we're all members of the Catholic Medical Association. What is the best reason you could tell future healthcare students that the Catholic Medical Association has been helpful to you? So let's go in reverse order. James, how has the CMA been a force for good in your life? Man, it's hard to know where to start. Um, I would say the first thing is probably mentorship, um, especially you know going into OBGYN and um, a lot of 
uh, what I was speaking about earlier with regards to uh, fertility awareness-based methods and restorative reproductive medicine um, is not heavily taught in a lot of um, uh, academic centers throughout the country. And so it's very important to get tapped into really good mentors who can educate you, who can provide you with uh, good research articles to inform yourself more about and um, to help you just navigate a lot of these ethical questions we were talking about um, in conversations. Um, and then the other thing I think is... Um, all the formation opportunities that the CMA has provided um, from their boot camp that I went to before I started medical school to their annual education conference. I mean, just so much learning I have received uh, and, and so much growth I have gone through because of the CMA. And in fact, I met James at Seek 19 in Indianapolis when we were offering mock medical school admissions interviews, and he hit it out of the park. And ever since then, he has been a, an incredibly faithful member and working hard now in outreach to pre-med students. And I appreciate his work very much. Emily, how has it been a force for good for you? Yes, I couldn't agree with you more, James. The mentorship aspect is essential. It's uh, tough navigating through uh, the rotations, the interview process. It's so important to uh, talk with uh, individuals who have been through this road before and can give the best guidance in how to um, how to be a good Catholic physician, how to be a good um, student resident, and it's just an essential aspect. And then also too, just with all the opportunities to participate in retreats and other you know formation has been um, invaluable in my life. And sister, I would echo everything they're saying. Uh, the fellowship is just very very powerful, and um, I also want to even put a plug in for the local guilds. Because we, we did um, a monthly uh, a study of St. John Paul II's on um, suffering, which is actually what you put together. And so every month, our local guild would get together, we invite all the medical students and residents, and talk about suffering, suffering in our patients, also our own suffering, and suffering of the others, physicians and nurses, and how we can pray for them, pray for ourselves, and just, you know, brainstorm and collaborate how we can support one another. So it's been a really, it's been a, a strong community building of where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. And also talking about good Catholic principles, because good ethics is good medicine. So a little over four years ago, we started a formal outreach to pre-medical students, and we've organized it with our outreach to medical students, to other healthcare students, to physicians in training. And we now call this community within the CMA Novus Medicus, which is Latin for the new physician. And it, like I said, it's not just for future physicians, but it was easier to come up with a catchy Latin nerdy phrase that the, the students like. So if you'd like information on being part of that, please come over to our booth or attend our lunch session tomorrow at 1230. We're in uh, the program and we are, we still have a little bit of time left, which is great. So what is something that we have not discussed yet that you wish that students going into a medical field would know? I think definitely it's common for uh, students to suffer from anxiety and depression during medical school, nursing school, and to be isolated and not have a good community, and that further worsens those uh, problems. And so it's just important to, to be open and connect with um, with mentors and other, um, you know, your priest, your um, your Catholic community to have a good force in your life. And that's something that we want to help you do through Novus Medicus is find a mentor, whether it's local or virtual. That is key. That was one of the things I missed out the most in my life. I didn't meet one until I was in my internship. And one statement from one doctor changed the course of my life. Mentors can have such an incredible impact. Sister, what do you wish that they knew that they don't know? 
Again, I think that, you know, be not afraid. I was just very moved by Bishop Conley, but I think anxiety is such a common, common symptom and depression. And it causes us to feel like, oh no, I'm not strong enough, I'm weak. And to know that's not it at all, to turn to someone to get a good help so that you can you can get the help that you need. It's medical treatment as, as well as emotional um, support and spiritual support. I think that's very key. So be not afraid if you're depressed or you're anxious because um, we're not expected to be little automatons. James, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, Emily was touching on this a little bit earlier, but the idea of like building really good habits now. Um, when you're young, it's uh, hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And uh, I'm quickly I'm feeling like I'm getting old. And so I think the idea of like really building a good, virtuous life, surrounding yourself with good people, um, that will help you so much um, in, in your future healthcare career. All right, our last question before we go to the medical trivia question answer. How do you balance family life with the demands of being a doctor or nurse? So... You're the only married one here. That's right. What have you learned? Um, I have learned that uh, God provides the grace you need in your vocation. Um, you were speaking earlier, Dr. McGovern, about the, you know, the three levels of vocation, and our call to medicine is our tertiary vocation. So our secondary vocation comes first, and when we live that out well, um, it, it's, it follows downstream, that everything past that you know, our tertiary vocation will come in line as well. So um, I learned that the hard way by not prioritizing my wife as often as I should, but uh, by God's grace, I've learned a ton, and, and uh, we're, uh, our marriage is all the healthier for it. And I am married. I have seven children, and I can tell you I devoted too much time not to work but to apostolate. Like, like this work. And it's only within the last several years I've learned to rebalance it. So I cannot say strongly enough, put yourself first into your state in life that does come before your vocation in medicine. As, as doctors and nurses, we tend to just keep going until we physically hit the wall. That is a bad idea. It doesn't end well. Uh, and, and that's somewhat responsible. Sometimes burnout is due to the organization and what they're asking. But sometimes we put it on ourselves when we're ignoring our, our, our state in life. But now I'd like to get to the answer to the medical trivia question and do a little discussion on that. And that is, what percent of college students as of fall 2021 had been diagnosed with at least one mental health illness? And it was incredible. It's at least 31%. Uh, that's a really high number. Now, James, you were a missionary. Did you see that a lot as a missionary? I did, yeah, quite a lot. Um, I think one of the privileges that we have as, as focused missionaries is being able to walk with students um, you know, and form such deep and close relationships with them. And so a lot of them opened up to me about different uh, mental illnesses that they were suffering from. And um, I think Bishop Connolly really hit the nail on the head talking about in his homily today about his journey um, you know, going through and, and suffering from mental illness and how the importance of reaching out and asking for help um, I was able to, you know, share uh, so many different resources uh, with these students from, you know, connecting them to therapists, to psychiatrists, to spiritual directors, really allowing them to receive holistic healing and, um, is so important. And you can search on our website, doctordoctor.org. We've probably done at least 10 episodes related to anxiety and depression from a Catholic perspective. It, incredibly helpful. Emily, you take care of all ages in your practice. Why would you say that many of the young adults you see have been suffering from mental illness? Well, I think, yeah, it all stems from people being so isolated, especially with the pandemic, just exacerbated everything. And what people were using for either coping me mechanisms or initially start out as bad habits, such as smoking marijuana or viewing pornography, just 
skyrocketed and just so many people were using those um, in rather instead of other forms of um, dealing with their anxiety, such as going to their doctor or exercising or or getting good sleep. And it's just there's so many people who are suffering, don't know who to turn to. And um, it's just been such a huge problem lately, especially in, in the young community. But now, luckily, more and more people are um, are encouraging young people to seek help and um, get treated for mental illness. So, Sister, what would you add to what college students can do to either prevent or successfully treat or stave off mental illness in college? Well, since one of the major mental illnesses is, is anxiety, I would say then to begin to do more media fasts because what is experienced as anxiety is actually withdrawal. You've become addicted to the stimulation, which overstimulates the visual and auditory centers and doesn't let you to kind of pause and ponder. So I would recommend doing that because that has been a big factor. And it also disconnects you from human persons. A cell phone will not make you feel loved or known <laughs> or connected, even though it says it does. Only the real thing will really begin to, to serve us. We're created to know and be known and love and be loved. And that's the real thing. Not so at the end of uh, each episode, we have the top three takeaways from that episode. Usually my co-host, Chris or Andrew, does this. So since I have three guests, they each get one. So what is the number one thing you would like our listeners, Sister Marisha Therese, remember from this episode? Again, I would echo what's been said. Develop good habits, your prayer life, reach out, and um, know that, that there are people there who are here to support you, especially if you're interested in health care and, and, and your own healing. Emily? Yeah, I would say um, to let everyone know that you are not alone. You can become a great Catholic physician or nurse one day, and we are more than happy to help you achieve that if you join us in the Catholic Medical Association. And James, you can round out the top three. Yeah, if you're having any doubts about what your, where your place is in medicine or, or how you can best serve, they really, you just need to reach out. There are people who have gone before you who have paved the road. Um, they've been incredibly um, formative in my life, and, and I believe they can be in yours. So reach out. The Catholic Medical Association, for example, is a great resource. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Dr. Doctor. We've got over 300 episodes you can search. Please subscribe, drdoctor.org, because nothing else looks at everything medical from a Catholic perspective. In fact, last week's episode was uh, author Joseph Pierce, Suffering in Great Literature. And we looked at some authors who suffered from horrible things. Jane Austen probably died of Hodgkin's lymphoma, wrote her best books during that time. Flannery O'Connor died of lupus while writing some of her best works. So we cover the gamut of things. And now we even have episodes on YouTube if you want to look at us. And I don't understand why you would want to. But we do have that. Um, and also... Please, if you have ideas for episodes on our website, submit a question. Tell me now. I'm looking for things. You know, after 300-plus episodes, it's hard to come up with fresh topics. So if you have them, let me know. I'm Dr. Tom McGovern, and I'm signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on the Focus Seek conference, visit seek.focus.org. This episode of the Seek 23 podcast was produced by Spoke Street. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.